If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Ellie Cawthorn, staff writer on BBC History magazine. Before we begin, I want to tell you about a special offer we are running for podcast listeners where you can enjoy a one-month free trial to all the premium content on historyextra.com as well as a free edition of BBC History magazine for Apple and Android devices. Head to subscribe.historyextra.com forward slash podcast to find out more. It seems to me that, from our perspective now, from the Cold War perspective, obviously Stalin is on one side and Roosevelt and Churchill are on the other side. You know, the West, the East versus the West. But that wasn't really clear-cut at the time. That was David Reynolds talking about the Big Three of World War II. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available across the globe in print and digital formats. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from Professor David Reynolds of the University of Cambridge whose latest book explores the relationship between Allied wartime leaders through the letters they exchanged. He spoke to our digital editorial assistant, Rachel Dinning, at our History Weekend event in York late last year. I'm at our annual York History Weekend with David Reynolds, who has recently published a book called The Kremlin Letters. Um, This is an account of the dynamics of the Second World War's Grand Alliance through the messages exchanged by its leaders, Stalin, Churchill and Roosevelt. So welcome, David. So I want to start by talking about the title of the book. So it's called The Kremlin Letters, Stalin's Wartime Correspondence with Churchill and Roosevelt. And it examines more than 600 messages exchanged between the three. Why did you decide to look at it through the Russian perspective? Why, Why focus on Stalin? Because that, I think, is where the most novel material comes from. Uh, This is a book that I've done with uh, 
Russian colleague, Vladimir Pachatnov, who's a professor in Moscow. Vladimir and his colleague, younger colleague, Iskander Magdiev, have spent a long time looking at the Stalin material, which is now available in the Russian state archives, also material from the Russian foreign ministry, available in the foreign ministry archives. And that is, of course, material that, although it's available in principle to the public, you would need to spend a long time in Moscow. You'd have to be extremely fluent in, in Russian to be able to deal with. So the virtue of this collaboration between us is that that's material that they have been able to use in a unique way. And that's what gives us the new perspectives on the war because much of the British and American material has been available for quite a long time in the Roosevelt Library, in the Churchill Archives in Cambridge, in the National Archives in both Britain and, and America. So the Kremlin letters are really because it's the view from the Kremlin that help, helps us to see this whole relationship in very different ways. And you were actually talking just before we started the interview about the process of looking at these letters has opened your eyes and um, you've seen things in slightly different light than before. Mm. Perhaps could you elaborate on this for me now? I realised in starting to work on it, because what's happened is that this, this book originally appeared in a much longer version in, in, in Russian, two volumes, 1,500 pages. And when we were talking, Vladimir and I, about publishing it in English. I said, the whole thing has got to be totally rewritten for an English-language audience and also for English-language publishers because they're not going to publish 1,500 pages. And what struck me, and I said, what will strike a publisher and an audience, is what does this material, what light does it throw on these three men uh, who we think we know very well, but actually this correspondence shows up in, in a different way. Um, so, and one of the things that then I realized was we are talking about a medium of communication which is perfectly familiar to people over 40 or 45, but really is rather old-fashioned and bizarre for a Facebook generation. I, I, in the States recently, I was talking to a student at Harvard who had never stuck a, a, a stamp on a letter and actually couldn't really imagine why you'd want to write a letter. And that has helped me, that perspective has helped me to think, okay, what's actually involved when you're trying to get to, some, to know somebody where you can't pick up the phone, when it's not easy to meet face to face, and you've got to go through this really rather ponderous business of writing a letter, plus the fact then, of course, it's got to be translated and all the rest and of it. And encrypted and all that, That's yeah. That's right. So the result is that people, it, when they're writing a letter, they put a lot more of themselves into that. They reveal more about themselves than in a you know, quick-fire conversation or whatever. And that's what I found. I found it was fascinating to see the way Churchill spends so much time writing because that's the way he is always trying to convince people. He's a believer in putting everything on paper. I knew Franklin Roosevelt was a man who didn't like putting things on paper, but I never, I, I was really amazed the degree to which he let so much of this correspondence be written by others because the correspondence was never an end in itself for Roosevelt. It was a means to trying to draw Stalin into having a face-to-face -face meeting. And then I think I was hugely impressed at the calculation with which Stalin went about this business. 
it's clear right at the start that he's not used to doing diplomacy with capitalist leaders. And frankly, the, the first couple of chapters of the book, we show that he's very flat-footed. And over time, he becomes much more effective. He certainly knows when to write and when to not write, the power of silence. But he also has an amazing capacity to wrong-foot his allies. Uh, for example, the, the, the story of how he turns the, the Katyn massacre, which is the revelations by the Germans that several thousand Polish bodies have been found in a forest in Smolensk, near Smolensk. Mm -hmm pretty evidently killed by the Russians. How he manages to turn that totally around in a, a 10 days of correspondence to his own advantage because he comes out fighting, because he doesn't take it lying down or saying, oh God, I've been discovered. It's absolutely brilliant as a piece of diplomacy. Quite cynical because he has signed the death warrant for these guys in 1940, we know that now but absolutely brilliant in terms of sort of diplomatic chutzpah, really. You sort of see the growth of him as a politician. The growth of him as a politician and, and uh, in a very... And a, a politician and also a man who understands how to handle diplomacy. And what this correspondence did is to put into perspective the comments of several people at wartime conferences, for example, Yalta, that, you know, Stalin was the most impressive of the three... You know, Churchill and Roosevelt talked too much, and Stalin, when he, he, he didn't say very much, but when he came in, it was absolutely there. Used his words at the right time. Used his words at the right time. And he also done his homework. I mean, he really had um, mugged up on all these issues. So it wasn't that he was faffing around. He, you know, he had things to say, bang, bang, bang. And sometimes Roosevelt was too tired to read the briefing papers, and Churchill just went off at tangents, you know. So he's a very controlled and very effective person in foreign policy. Well, you mentioned that he had this way of using silence as a particular yeah. tactic, which I imagine it must have been quite difficult for Roosevelt and Churchill to trust Stalin after knowing that he had agreements with Hitler mm -hmm. in the past. And so when he did use this silence, it would, you know, immediately, st you, they'd start to think perhaps, oh, what's what's happening? What's That's going right. on on, the, on his side? If we talk about their relationship in, in these terms, was Stalin the odd one out? Obviously, he's from a very different ideological background compared mm. to the other two. Was, was there a, a slight power imbalance? How did they manage that? There's certainly a trust imbalance at the start of the war, at the start of the alliance. Uh, Churchill and Roosevelt have become quite close. Stalin is very much coming in from the cold and, as you say, um, from somebody who has you know, been the ally or virtually the ally of Hitler until the moment that the German army attacks. But Stalin, like any really hard-nosed politician, doesn't offer explanations about the past, however embarrassing the past is. He just now treats the present and the future. So it's basically as soon as the Germans attack, when are you going to open a second front? When are you going to provide supplies for me? We're allies now, not talking, not saying anything about what happened before, mm. no. But for Churchill and Roosevelt, yes, it's definitely in their minds. Churchill particularly, that if, if, if Stalin could sign up with Hitler once, maybe he could do it again. Equally, for Stalin, Stalin doesn't forget the fact that in the 1930s, the West has appeased Hitler pretty happily. Um, Stalin is always, has never, is never satisfied all through the war about the explanations of why Rudolf Hess flew to London in May 1941. Was that actually really a, an attempt to sign a peace between Germany and Britain? So, you know, there is a, a, there is a backdrop 
of suspicion mm-hmm. on both sides, on all sides, but a recognition you have to work together. Now, you ask about whether, uh, about the, Im- the imbalance in other ways. Um, it seems to me that from our perspective now, from the Cold War perspective, obviously Stalin is on one side and Roosevelt and Churchill are on the other side. You know, West, the East versus the West. Um, but that wasn't really clear cut at the time. Certainly Roosevelt's attitude was that Churchill was an absolutely fundamental ally for, for, for Roosevelt, that they would, the two of them would be, uh, you know, among the policemen, as Roosevelt calls it, that, that would look after post-war security. But the Soviet Union would be part of that as well, that, that police policing of, of international peace. And it was because he, Roosevelt, thought that in certain respects, Stalin uh, represented a system that was closer to the United States in that, in Roosevelt's estimation, the US was not an imperial power. Stalin was not a power that had colonies abroad, whereas Winston was absolutely committed to the survival of the British Empire. And in that sense, for Roosevelt, uh, the America and Russia represented a way of moving forward, a, futurist, a future-looking set of values, whereas Churchill was stuck in the past. So the the ideologies looked more complicated in war than they might do now. And indeed, part of what I think is most striking about the, the book and the material in it is that if you start this reading this book, as one does fairly inevitably from the perspective of the world we live in now with Putin's Russia and all the rest of it, or our experience of the Cold War, what you realise is the complexity and the intricacy of this relationship and... and Uh, It doesn't fit easily into our stereotypical categories, which is, I think, part of what I hope good history should do. It actually, it just erodes some of our conventional wisdoms. It questions them, it probes them. You mentioned about how different their communication was today. So today we've we've got Facebook, we've got Twitter, we've got email. You can message someone in an instance. But these messages they were sending to each other We've talked about this slightly already. You had to draft it, then you had to um, encrypt it, you had to send it, decrypt it, translate it. There's this huge process to go through. There must have been so much consideration into what was put into Mm. these messages. I think it was Churchill that said tone could get lost in translation sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, Could you perhaps give us some examples of, of where difficulty arose from the limitations of their communication method? Well, surprisingly, there are, I mean, there are a few examples where a word has been mistranslated uh, in a way that is significant or at least has to be cleared up. Uh, but on the whole, those are not so problematic, partly because both, all three governments got into the practice uh, of giving or providing to the to, to whichever leader it was, Churchill, Reza or Stalin, both an English translation and an original text. So if Churchill got a message from Stalin, he would get an English translation, maybe by the, the Soviet embassy and a Russian text. The Foreign Office might go over the English translation and, you know, tidy it up and so on. Though the Foreign Office had to admit, you know, at one point in the war, they had a shortage of Russianists as well. It was, you know, this was a, a, a challenge for everybody. So it wasn't necessarily the, the actual words so much as just trying to read between the lines. Right. 
And that's part of why I say it's, it's particularly a, a problem letter writing when you can't pick up the sort of nuances of how people are using words, which you can if you're listening to them on the phone or something like that. You know, you know yeah. when the tone gets angry or it gets insistent or sarcastic or, you know, although you, the words are not saying it, somebody's sort of saying sorry, whatever it is. All you've got are these, piece, these, these letters on a page, these li literally these letters, you know, which you put into words and think, what is he saying? <laughs> you know, is this, okay. you know, is this sarcastic? Is this just, you know, something that's been thrown off so quickly that hadn't really thought about the implications of how it would be seen, which is certainly true. You know, there's a lot of... We have to remember as historians that we may be tracking one aspect of a story, but any political leader has got umpteen things coming across his or her desk every day. You know, it'd be true of Joseph Stalin, Winston Churchill, Theresa May, you know, she's not just dealing with Brexit, whatever it is. We have to be careful as historians not to just read too much into this one strand of communication. I often say to research students, you know, who are working on a particular topic, Britain's relations with so-and-so country, if you're looking at a particular crisis point, Get hold of the daily newspapers for the time and just see what else is on the front page. Oh, the government's got a political crisis. Or, oh, God, there's a famine or, you know, a flood or something, you know. And then you begin to think, yes, well, maybe actually they didn't have that much time to deal with the particular topic that I'm writing about. So casual messages could be completely offhand or casual or not thought through. Mm -hmm. So a huge amount of effort is going into the interpretation of these messages on paper and the policy, policies being built around it. And the, the example that I've particularly struck by in the, this correspondence is Churchill's attempt to try and deal with the fact that on the same day he could get completely different messages in terms of their tone and content from Stalin, you know, being really angry about the fact that they hadn't opened the Second Front. And Stalin, I think, had realised that if he, if he accused the British of cowardice, that was something that really made Churchill just go molten. I mean, was, you know, uh, the honour of the British army was at stake and all the rest of it. And then, you know, he could write that letter on the same day and he can write a, a letter being very friendly about this, that or the other, you know, so please, you, you know, bomb the hell out of Hamburg and, you know, let's exchange films about Stalingrad and, and Alamein and... And church are thinking, you know, what's going on? Another example, which is not to do with the conferences but, or to the correspondence, but in, May, in April uh, 1945, which is the last chapter of our book and where the relationship has become particularly difficult over Poland, over the UN, over Stalin's accusations that there's a deal going on with the, the Germans behind his back, is the same time that Churchill's wife, Clementine, is in Moscow for a visit because she has led the British Aid for Russia program, you know, it's, it's humanitarian aid for Russian people mm -hmm. and so on. Actually, Clemmy was very fed up with Winston about no second front. And so she put a huge amount of effort into this, this campaign. And in April 45, she went on a visit to Moscow and she was treated with the greatest possible courtesy. Molotov and his wife gave her a lovely dinner she was uh, hosted by Stalin in the Kremlin, very, again, very, very courteous way. She was provided with a special train to take her around Russia. And they were, you know, this was not, they were not used to actually, I mean, they were not used to many foreign dignitaries. They were certainly not used to many foreign dignitaries' wives coming. And so, you know, all sorts of sensitivities. They did all that beautifully. 
And at the same time, the message is just coming and bombarding Churchill and Roosevelt about Poland. And, and, and Churchill writes back to Clemmy and he says, you know, it's the inconsistency here I can't make sense of, you two know. Stalins. As well, two Stalins, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, and although I think this, what we're writing about in the Kremlin letters is a, a, a peculiar, a specific problem for this time and, and age, it's, you know, when they've got to correspond by letter, they can't meet because flying is hazardous and it's war. It's only, a, it's an example of a general problem for international relations. Yeah. Um, leaders are constantly trying to work out the psychology, the background of the other people they meet. You know, it would happen, uh, you know, Trump meeting Putin, Trump meeting Kim, you know. Any, it, uh, international relations are intercultural relations and we're not good at that as 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 national national c- countries. You know, we don't understand the other con- other countries well. We tend to, as it were, put them into our framework. And what you see here is three leaders struggling at intercultural relations as much as international relationships. And that, I think, is one way in which this book is illustrative of much larger challenges into into in in conducting diplomacy in in war or in peace how do you think they would have got on today with instant communication mm. i know this is a speculative question could it possibly have made things would it worse <laughs> more communication uh well i have tried to imagine Churchill doing Twitter, and I think it would be inconceivable that he'd managed to keep it down to 280 characters. Uh, maybe you should ask Andrew the same question. Andrew Roberts said exactly the same thing yes. in our podcast oh, right. with him. He said he thinks Churchill would love Twitter but struggle with the limit. Well, he wouldn't. I mean, he, he couldn't. Uh, I, he might have regarded it as a challenge, but um, Roosevelt, Roosevelt was such a superb communicator in the radio age particularly. He had a very good voice. Uh, I think he had a good face as well. I mean, to do some of it. He was an extraordinarily persuasive person. Of all the three, the most magnetic, I think. I think he could have done face-to-face communication very well. Well, Stalin. he was pushing always to meet Stalin, wasn't he? He was pushing, he? yes. So but I mean, if I'm trying to imagine that. him on sort of Facebook yeah, or something Yeah, yeah, like of course. The other thing that's worth remembering here is, of course, that interpreting is is really an important part of the story. Not just the translations that have got to be done of the messages, but if we're talking about actual direct communication, these guys didn't do another language, so there always had to be an interpreter. Now, if uh, Putin talks to Trump, his, his phone conversation will go through a State Department interpreter, same with you know, Putin on the other side. But so... We're not having, on the whole, real-time conversation. And when these guys actually met at their wartime conferences, it was all what was called consecutive translation, which means that I speak, you, the interpreter, scribble madly my, my comments and hope that at some point I'm going to pause for breath long enough for you to allow to be able to interrupt me without being rude and, and say, you know, the prime minister said that, you know, and then... The Russian interpreter listens to all this, writes it down, and then he turns to silence. So it basically takes double the time, and it's an artificial conversation. What's striking is that at some of the wartime conferences, we know that although Churchill and, and Roosevelt were 
frustrated by this, they never took their eyes off Stalin. They always watched the body language. Because even though they couldn't connect the body language to the words, they at least kind of thought, yes, at some point he got you know, angry and yeah, so on. And of course, one of the big changes in the Cold War period eventually was the use of a simultaneous translation. Um, so you have an interpreter in a booth that will, will provide you with the words coming through the ear at the same time as the man is talking. And that means you can relate the body language to the, to the, to the words. So that technical side of things is also a problem with, with imagining them dealing with modern communication today. It's not... That, of course, is why the Anglo-American relationship has always been potentially much closer, because... Britons and Americans, despite the fact there are one or two words, sometimes embarrassing ones that have a totally different meaning. I mean, you know, uh, pants, for example, in, in, the United, in America. Um, uh, basically, politicians and diplomats from the two countries can just talk like that. You don't need to do that. You don't need translation. And that really mattered in the early Cold War when Britain was still a major power and the United States still needed Britain's help and all the rest of it in a fundamental way. But translation, in other ways, is 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 you know is an impediment um, for or an additional barrier to to communication. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. One of the interesting things that I found when I was looking through your book is that you haven't just published letters as they appeared in their final no. form. You you published drafts and even like mm. the crossing crossing mm. outs and oh don't include this mm. part. Mm. Um, why was that important to you? Well, because you're seeing how people start how um, people had second thoughts about what to say. It's an indication that these messages mattered. You didn't just dash something off. You thought, yeah. Does that work? Does that not? Certainly between... Stalin would usually get a draft from Molotov, the foreign minister, and rewrite that. In the British case, sometimes Churchill would send a message off um, pretty quickly by himself. 
Some of these messages would be drafted by the Foreign Office and he would rewrite them. Some of them he'd take to the Cabinet, and you can read in the Cabinet minutes a lengthy discussion about a draft message. And, and the Cabinet is taking a view on, on this sort of thing. So, you know, deciding what, what to say and what not to say, deciding whether you press the sort of intimidation button or the conciliatory button, that's a matter of argument. And, and printing some of those drafts, and we don't do it all the time, is a way of showing how important these messages were for constructing an alliance that mattered in wartime. Could you perhaps give us an example of one where something has been, has been removed or deleted that uh, a particularly interesting case? Well, in the, case... Um, in, the, um, in the autumn of 1941, Stalin keeps increasing the pressure on the British for a, a second front. Uh, in other words, an invasion of France, or he said the Balkans, that must happen, he says, this year, 1941, sufficient to draw off 30 or 40 German divisions from the Eastern Front. Now, this is an example of Stalin's insensitivities, I think, as a diplomat in the early stages of the alliance. Churchill doesn't have 30 or 40 divisions in the whole of the British army that are suitable to fight. British army has spent most of 1941 retreating from places that they have just arrived in, you know, Greece, Crete, uh, North Africa, whatever. And so when Stalin keeps on at this, it's one, an example for Churchill of how unrealistic he is. Two, an example of how desperate he is and why would we really want to put our resources behind this man, you know, it could easily lose. And also really bloody cheeky, frankly, you know, as far as Winston's concerned. Um, and so there's one, one draft, for example, where he, he just simply says, what you're requiring in terms of troops is absolutely impossible. Brief list of disposition of the British Army and all the rest of it. And it goes to Cabinet, and the Cabinet, meaning the Chiefs of Staff, represents the Chiefs of Staff, the Foreign Office, and so on, say, you cannot send a message back like that. In fact, they say, this is one of the most important messages you've ever, ever written. There's got to be a balance. So you've got to say, okay, if you want to say we can't do it, we can't do a second front, which everybody agrees in London, there's got to be some way of sweetening the pill by saying, okay, we will provide so many you know, aircraft a month, tanks, whatever. So in other words, we're providing material aid even if we're not going to provide it a second front. And that is discussed in Cabinet. It, the issue is made very clear and the, the draft is, is, is re rewritten in... Um, in consequence. Mm -hmm. And it's a very, uh, it's one of those days I've just said that, you know, a lot of the time they're not spending all their day on diplomacy and they're doing all sorts of other things as well. It's one of those days I think where they, you know, Churchill and most of the senior people in government spent all day on, it was sort of Russia Such day. Yeah. And interestingly enough, I think there's this real sense of relief when finally the message goes off. And Anthony Eden, the Foreign Secretary, writes in his diary, Winston's, Winston was greatly relieved. He took us out for a really good dinner. <laughs> it's a very Churchillian way to end the day. Um, I was actually going to bring up the issue of the second front. So Stalin had been demanding that the Allies open up a second mm. front in Western Europe, um, wanted to draw the German attention away from the Russian front. But Churchill, the argument was that well, it's going to result in heavy casualties. We're, we're elsewhere in Europe right now. 
etc. Um, was there a political reason for Churchill's reluctance to open up a second front, or, or was it purely the, the practicalities? The political reason, I think I would say it's more of a, it's, it's sort of political ideological reason, and it's that no democratic politician could tolerate the casualty levels that Stalin accepted with total indifference, really. Stalin uses human life in a very brutal way. He, he doesn't tolerate retreats and surrenders. He, pretty much every time that, that they, they take the initiative against the Germans, Stalin is in favor of a full-scale attack, which loses massive numbers of people. It's only by 1943 that his marshals basically persuade him, you know, just wait. Mm -hmm. Let the Germans attack us at Kursk. We take the pain in defensive positions that have been carefully prepared. And when they have exhausted themselves, we start to roll. When Stalin says to Churchill, if they're arguing as they do, I think in 1942, and Churchill says, can't do a second front, you know, don't have the troops, we can't, you know, casualties. Stalin says, 100,000 men? You know, you could make that sacrifice because of what we're doing on the Eastern Front. And in the simple scale of, of losses, you, you know, you could make that point. But Churchill can't go to the House of Commons and say, we've landed 100,000, we've lost 100,000 men in a suicide mission on yeah. the coast of France, we've had to retreat again. You can't say that to a country that is still scarred by the Somme and Passchendaele, a country that has never not quite recovered from the shock of Dunkirk or the near, you know, near miss of the miracle of Dunkirk. So the, the situation is totally different. Roosevelt's the same. That's why both Roosevelt and Churchill agree on landing in North Africa, because Roosevelt would like to attack France in 1942, but he accepts that Certainly for the British, who would be British and Canadian troops would be doing most of the attacking, given the state of the American mobilization at that point. Churchill will not accept that level of casualties. Roosevelt can understand that as well. And what he wants is to blood the American army, in other words, as it were, give them experience of war in an easier theater like North Africa. They will start to learn about real war fighting. And also they would do it against the Germans because the most important thing for Roosevelt is to head off this constant, this danger that American public will just say, the Japanese are the only people who've really hit us and they've humiliated us at Pearl Harbor. We're gonna have revenge on them. Let's turn everything on the war against Japan. So Roosevelt wants a second front somewhere in 1942 against the Germans. And if it can't be France, and he recognizes that, then North Africa. Mm -hmm. So these are both democratic politicians for whom casualty levels are really something that you have to think about in a way that a, a dictator with a background as a mass murderer does not. I wanted to also talk about the roots of the Cold War because, and this is sort of linked to the Second Front, because obviously no Second Front initially meant that the Red Army could mm. come into Eastern Europe. Do we start seeing the seeds of the Cold War being sown at this time? The, the Second Front issue is not directly the cause of the Cold War. I think that the, my point is that the Soviet Union would not have been su in such a strong position in Eastern Europe if it had not occupied, if it had not carried the weight of the war against Germany. You know, it basically, the land war against Germany is di 
is determined by the outcome of, uh, of, of, of the battles on the Eastern Front, not in North Africa, not in, you know, in France when we land. So the, the, it's likely that the Red Army is going to be in a strong position in Eastern Europe. The issue then is how does that relationship, how does the diplomatic relationship turn out? Can we negotiate our way into a situation where there are agreements on Eastern Europe and on Germany? After all, the principle of the, the Allied doc documents on Germany are basically that we will occupy Germany to demilitarize it, democratize it, and then agree a new German government and pull out. It's not that we will be in occupation for the next 45 years. Um, the reason we can't is because there is suspicion on both sides that grows not so much, not just from the war and from the fact that the alliance was fought, you know, for different motives, but also because of other issues that come up. I mean, the sense that the Soviets are pressing in uh, to extend their influence in Iran, in North Korea, in they're not willing to have open governments in parts of Eastern Europe. But the one that I think, for, for me, the, the Cold War in Europe largely is about a struggle for mastery of Germany. That after two German wars, the future of Germany is just too big an issue for Russia, Britain, and indeed America to compromise on. And because they can't agree on what to do with Germany, they end up dividing it in two, which actually in a certain way provides a degree of stability for the next 45 years. It's a, a, it's a cold war, it's a, 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 a fraught st stability. Neither side can allow the other to gain full control of Germany. Uh, so, you know, in that sense, the cold war comes out of the, the two German wars. Um, the Axis powers, so Germany, Italy and Japan, were in some ways far more alike as political re mm. regimes. But America, Britain and Russia <laughs> outstripped them in terms of military and diplomatic cooperation. Why was their alliance successful and why was the Axis alliance not? Well, on the, on the face of it, the simple reason why, as it were, the, uh, the American-British-Soviet alliance uh, is uh, you know, successful is because... Together, we have much more substantial resources than the other side uh, in terms of manpower, in terms of economics and so on. Um, so, you know, you might say it's an inevitable victory. On the other hand, in early 1942, uh, the, the Axis powers are doing very, very well. When Japan comes into the war, when Germany is, is pushing through towards um, the Caucasus to Stalingrad and is, is, seems on the brink of, of uh, conquering uh, 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 Egypt and, and the Suez Canal and so on. So what I think then is that diplomacy matters. And why, what strikes me about these leaders and what I think the Kremlin letters the book brings out is the way that these leaders did for all their their personal limitations, their ideological blinkers and so on, there was a general agreement that uh, what had to be done was to defeat Germany, to, to, to defeat Nazi Germany, to eliminate Nazism. And that overrode all the other considerations. So Churchill, a lifelong anti-Bolshevik, the moment Hitler invades Russia, he gives a broadcast um, on the radio saying that... Um, you know, aid will be given, all the rest of it. 
and his private secretary, Jock Colville, um, points out that this is a little bit at odds with his past history. And Churchill says, if Hitler invaded hell, I would at least make a favorable reference mm -hmm. to the devil in the House of Commons. Uh, in other words, you know, this is the prime enemy. Everything else is secondary. So that sense of what is the big issue and what are secondary issues is, is I think, fundamental for all of them because Stalin is doing a big leap as well in terms of, of cooperating. The problem is that, of course, as, with, as, as we know in life and in, in diplomacy, the secondary issues have a tendency to come, come back and uh, hit you in the back of your neck. They become the primary issues in the future, you know. Yeah. The solution for one problem becomes the new problem in the future, and, that, and that's what happens here. But I think that, you know, we ought to be grateful that, if you like, Hitler's racism was a major impediment to him ever conceiving of serious cooperation with Japan, and that these three men, for all their differences, did manage to combine, because I don't think it is a hugely, a huge exaggeration to say, otherwise we might not be here today. And just on that note, on, that's a great place to start wrapping things up. Um, but we'll just leave it on me asking you, what's, what's your favourite letter from, from the book? I think my favourite letter from the book is... Uh, comes in June 1944, and it's after uh, two years, two and a half years, no, nearly three years of Stalin going on about Weiner's Second Front. And five days after the D-Day landings, when it's clear that the Allies have established themselves in Normandy, even if they've not yet broken out, Stalin writes a message which he really did not need to write in these this degree of, 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 of these terms, where he says, you know, the, that Napoleon boasted of doing this, the hysterical Hitler said he would do it and never got round to it, crossing the channel. He said, only our allies have managed to achieve this and history will record this as an achievement of the highest order. And I think that illustrates his recognition that for all their evasions as he saw it and the limitations his allies had delivered. And two weeks later, as he promised he would do it at, when they met at Tehran the previous November, November 1943, Stalin mounts his major summer offensive of 1944 in Belarusia, which is deliberately intended to provide the support for the invasion, the landing in Normandy. So Germany is now being pummeled from both sides in a really powerful way. And that letter, I think, sums up the, the fact that, for all its limitations, this was a bizarre alliance that actually worked. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure, Rachel. Thank you. That was Professor David Reynolds. The Kremlin Letters, Stalin's wartime correspondence with Churchill and Roosevelt, is out now in the UK and the US, published by Yale University Press. And you can read David's piece on these wartime letters on our website, historyextra.com. And that's free to access if you're a BBC History magazine subscriber. And that is about it for today, but we'll be back on Thursday to explore the Amritsar massacre. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. You can catch up with past episodes on historyextra.com, where you'll also find thousands of articles on all different aspects of history, 
as well as our special subscriber-only area, the library. 